Luke 23 and Philippians chapter 1, and then bookmark Revelation 6. So this morning we looked at the coming judgment of Jesus and how we see that Jesus is going to judge people based on their relationship to him, how they treat him and how they um, treat others based on them being uh, their, his children or Jesus being their Lord. And he says that he's going to divide them into eternal life or, or into eternal punishment. And all of this, as we talked about hell and talked about what eternal punishment and eternal fire looked like, I think this is one of the most important things that we learn from this. We will never understand hell if we do not understand it within the biblical storyline, especially in relation to God's commitment to restore his world. Another way of saying that is we'll never understand hell unless we know that it is a consequence of God wanting to restore the world, to bring heaven on earth. And that's why he's so serious about hell. So there's a bigger picture that we have to know, that we need to see. And I would say, in the same way that applies to hell, that also applies to heaven. If we really want to understand heaven, we need to see it in light of the biblical storyline. What is um, the Bible at after when it talks about heaven and us going there, being there. So, and, and I would say the best way to understand that is to understand it within the story. So because of that, I, want, I made up this little diagram for us, the biblical storyline. I would really encourage you guys um, uh, to trace it out, do it in your own notes. But uh, this is what we see. In the beginning of the Bible, we see creation. God created heaven and earth. You can see in the middle there is this kind of intersection of heaven and earth, what we call the Garden of Eden. We'll talk about that tonight. But that's what's on the first page of the Bible, creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, only a few chapters into the Bible, because of man's sin and corruption, we see the inevitability of death, that we will die. All of us in this room will die one day. So uh, whatever life we have, it's going to end in death. That is part of our existence. Nonetheless, in this, we see that God is not going to leave his creation to just go into a cycle of death and destruction. And we can trace God's plan of restoration and redemption through the family of Abraham, which turns into the people of Israel, which culminates in Jesus, and then um, comes to us as the church. So you fast forward... Uh, past Jesus and the church, and there's a future day when Jesus is going to return, and that's when judgment is going to happen. Judgment is going to happen at some point. So Jesus speaks of this moment of judgment as when the Son of Man comes in his glory. I'll go back to the diagram. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and with all the angels with him, that is when judgment happens, okay? That is a future event that has not happened yet. Jesus' judgment has not happened yet. So after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we know that Jesus has now ascended into heaven. That's where he is now. He's enthroned in heaven. Mark 16, 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to his disciples, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. 
1 Peter 3 says Jesus has gone into heaven and he is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So where is Jesus now? Heaven. He is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven now. That's what those two verses just said. Very plainly, (laughs) it said Jesus has gone into, everyone, heaven. Okay, Jesus is in heaven now. Now, Acts 1, verse 11 says this, um, the disciples, Jesus gets ascended up, and they're standing there, they're looking at um, the sky as Jesus was ascended up, and these angels tell them, they say, Jesus will come back to earth in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So one day, Jesus is going to descend back on earth, and that is when judgment happens, okay? So that's the judgment when Jesus returns, and he's going to descend onto earth, and he's going to split the sheep and the goats, sending some to eternal life and others to eternal punishment, okay? Now, looking at this diagram, there's already a big question mark, right? There's a big gap in the middle here. This is what we call the interim period or the transitional period. It happens as the intermediate state, which simply means the state between our death and Jesus's judgment. It's between life on earth and the future resurrection of life on the new earth for us as Christians. So where are those who have died in Christ now? Where are those who have died without Christ now? Because we've talked about when judgment happens, where they will go, but where are they now? So that was probably one of the hardest questions that I've looked at throughout this whole thing. And the difficulty is that the Bible doesn't really say a lot about this. It doesn't have a lot of clarity for us in regards to the subject, but there are a few key verses, okay, that we're going to look at to help us maybe put some pieces together, okay? Um, One that we've already mentioned just previously was this parable of the two thieves on the cross in Luke 23. If you had your Bibles open, that's this passage, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked this other criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we were receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus tells this thief, who is most likely a wretch at life, someone you don't want to hang out with, someone your mama would have said, stay away from that person. Jesus tells this thief, because of this statement, you will be with me in paradise today. Not on the last day I'm going to resurrect you, but today you're going to be with me in paradise. Um, Philippians chapter 1, if you have that one bookmarked. This is another passage that we looked at at Fall Retreat. Um, Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, very far better. Um, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So why does Paul think death is gain? Paul thinks death is gain and believes that with his whole heart because he sees death as an entryway to being with Jesus. He sees the fact that when he dies, he will be with Jesus. Okay, so um, both of these passages, among some others, like in 2 Corinthians 5, there's another parable about a rich man and Lazarus. Um, These things lead us to believe that when a follower of Jesus dies, they go to something called paradise. Other, other things it's called is Abraham's side. Um, but it never says that we go to heaven. It says that we go to paradise. But because we know uh, we're going to be with Jesus, and Jesus is where? Heaven. If we're going to be with Jesus, then we're going to heaven. We're going to be with heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about it that way, but we can draw that conclusion based on some other things, okay? So we're going to go be in paradise, go to be with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you die, you'll be brought into the presence of Jesus in heaven. It will be like a paradise, and uh, that's what scripture teaches us. Now, um, just while we're talking about this, let's fill in our diagram for about uh, those people who are not Christians when they die? What about those people that don't follow Jesus? And again, uh, the Bible does not tell us explicitly. It does not say these are where unrepentant people are now. It doesn't say anything about that. Um, But first, or 2 Peter 2 writes that God knows how to keep the unrighteous people under punishment until the day of judgment. This seems to me that it means that when the unrighteous people die, they are kept under some sort of punishment or suffering until that day of judgment, okay? The parable of the rich man in Luke 16, if you want to read that, also might give this picture, but this appears to be the fact that the unrighteous spend this interim period before judgment and some sort of suffering or punishment. So that's our filled out diagram there. I think I find this helpful because typically we just imagine the diagram like this, like it's earth, our life, and then it's heaven or hell. It's a very simple diagram that we usually paint, but I think this diagram helps capture more of the biblical language, and more so, I think it captures the biblical story. And why is that important? Why is it important to just kind of belabor this whole story and talk about this interim period? For one, This is probably one of the most important reasons. It releases us from this popular assumption or belief that heaven is our final or ultimate destination. We've heard it all the time that heaven is our home. We are going to go and be in heaven forever. This is not what Scripture says. Scripture does not say that we will stay in that paradise forever. We are going to be brought to judgment and then we'll be resurrected to Uh, eternal life, which, as we'll talk about tonight, is about heaven and earth meeting. It's going to be an earthly 
heavenly dwelling place, okay? So it tells us that heaven is simply our transitional home. It is temporary. Heaven is temporary. Heaven and earth will pass away for new heavens and a new earth to be created. So that's why I think it's so important to show that diagram that we did because it shows us that heaven is temporary. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a wonderful place. Uh, that, that's very far better, and it's like paradise where we get to be with Jesus, and it's better than life on earth, but it's not our final destiny. Our final destiny as human beings is not heaven. It's temporary, just a stop on the, along the way to our true home. So next May, uh, my grandparents um, have decided they're going to take the whole family to Disney World pretty excited. I'm excited. Hudson and Emmy don't know what's going on, really, but I'm pretty thrilled about it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to the drive. I don't like driving long hours in the car with two children under, now will be three children at that point, under three. (laughs) Three car seats. I try to like listen to my podcast or like books on tape. They don't like that. They don't like that stuff. So uh, we listen to, like, lullabies or stuff like that. Um, it's nine long hours in the car. But, okay, it's ten? Okay, it's ten long hours in the car. But say this happens. What if, which is, this is most likely what's going to happen. On the way down there, we're going to stop at Chick-fil-A, probably, okay? Because, listen, this is the ideal. You stop at Chick-fil-A, you get the kids out, you just put them in the play, play place, and you just, like, shut the door. And just, you can see them through the window. <laughs> they get some energy out. You can eat in peace. It's nice, okay? You'll, you'll understand one day. When you have small children, you'll understand. Um, but say they, they go to the play place at Chick-fil-A. They're eating their food. They're playing on the play place. They're soaking in the slice of heaven that is Chick-fil-A. And what if, what if they start to assume that this is what the drive is for? What if they start to assume that we drove five hours to go to Chick-fil-A and they want to just keep playing in the play place and keep enjoying chicken nuggets, right? They're losing sight of the true destination. We did not drive five hours to go to Chick-fil-A and we actually have a little bit more to go in order to get where we're really wanting to go. And And so the whole point of this is this weird illustration, but and it involves Chick-fil-A equated with heaven. I get it. It's weird. But also it's not because we all understand. But heaven is only a temporary stop on the way to the final destination. It's just a pit stop. Heaven and paradise is temporary, and it's a pit stop on the way to what God really has in store for us. So we cannot lose sight of our final destination. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to spend all night tonight talking about what that final destination is. Um, But first, I want to explore what does this temporary heaven look like? What does temporary paradise have in mind? And uh, that's where we turn next. Okay, so we're going to talk about what the term heaven is um, in the Bible. When the Bible uses the word heaven, what is it talking about? Okay, everyone good? All right. No one needs to go grab a coffee right now? We're good? Okay. Um, the term heaven in the Bible, it's used in a variety of ways. There is some um, variety to it, but there's not a whole lot of distinction. But we're going to look at kind of 
three different ways the Bible uses it, okay? First one, the skies. When the Bible uses the word heaven, it's a lot of time just referring to the sky. Um, let's start with perhaps maybe the most famous Bible usage of the word heaven. It's in Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. As underwhelming and as simplistic as it may be, this is probably just talking about the skies as a geographical location. God created the skies and the earth. From their perspective, it's they see these two realms. The sky, which was mysterious, they couldn't get there, right? They didn't have telescopes. They didn't have space travel. They didn't have ability to kind of touch the sky or be in the sky. So it was this mysterious divine realm, and so they equated that with God's space. Psalms 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Uh, The writer of the psalm here is just drawing synonyms between heaven and the sky. It's the same thing. Just talking about that geographical location above the earth, the sky. And that's what they mean by heaven. So to say that the heavens declare the glory of God is to say that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So, um, like I said, though, this is, this, is, um, this is important to kind of like put back in their perspective, when the peoples were people writing the Bible, this was two, three thousand years ago, the sky was totally like out of reach and, and mysterious and divine. And so it was a realm more so where God ruled, which leads to the next usage. Heaven can be referencing the skies just geographically, or it could be referencing God's space where he dwells. When, it talks of, when the Bible uses the word heaven, it says that's where God dwells. He dwells in heaven. Um, Deuteronomy 26, 15 says this, Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us. So hell is still referenced as the sky here, but it's more than that. It is God's dwelling place, his residence, his space. This is the first line of the Lord's Prayer that we just read. Our Father who is in heaven, right? It's saying that God lives in heaven. His habitation, his dwelling is in heaven. And constantly throughout the gospel and in Matthew, Jesus claims that, that God is in heaven. His Father is in heaven. Um, in Psalms 115.16, here's the kind of the contrast that's important. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So the earth references human space. That's where we dwell. And the heavens are where God dwells. That's his space, his dominion. So that, that's, there's more to this than simply God dwells there. The psalmist, the book of Psalms, often uses all of this imagery of God dwelling in heaven to say that God has dominion and authority in and above creation. For example, Psalm 115 says this, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So they're using this whole idea, just track with him there. They're saying that God is in heaven, and what that means is God can do whatever he wants. God is above the ways of this world. He is above his creation. He dwells above it, and he can do whatever he pleases. So this leads to the next point of how heaven is often used. It's often used for a 
uh, a metaphor for God's dominion, his rule, his reign, his authority. That's how the biblical writers often describe heaven. They're saying God has that authority over all of creation. That's what it means for he's in heaven. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. It's where he has dominion and authority. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 66.1 says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. The biblical writers are taking heaven and they're using it as an image of authority above earthly human authority. So when we see the word heaven, that's what it's hitting. It's hitting this whole idea that God has authority over and above any earthly authority above our authority. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, what we see in like the gospel of Matthew in particular, is he says the kingdom of heaven is here. And what Jesus is saying is, Uh, God's authority is here right now in me. God's authority, his rule, his reign is here, and and you have to respond to it. Jesus is using heaven in that way. So to summarize, this is how we see the Bible use the term heaven, okay? It can refer to the skies in the most basic sense. Beyond that, it references God's dwelling place, his space, in contrast to like human space on earth. And all of this reflects his dominion, his authority, his rule and reign above earthly authorities. So notice, okay, notice that the Bible does not set up heaven as a place created for human beings to enjoy if they are good when they die. That's not how they set up heaven. That's not the imagery that they use, or it's not the the point that they use the heaven imagery for. They're not setting it up like that. Heaven was not designed for human beings to dwell. Heaven was not designed for us to go there and to dwell, but for God to dwell there. So while the popular use of heaven today is to talk about the place that we go as Christians when we die, Scripture never once talks about heaven in that way. Now, it talks about paradise, right? It talks about um, going to be with Jesus, but it doesn't talk about heaven like that. So I only clarify that not to say that it's wrong to say that we go to heaven when we die. That's not wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong in any way, shape, or form. I'm saying that's not the way the Bible uses that term. And if we continually use terms in such a way where it's foreign to how the Bible uses terms, we'll get confused when we read the Bible. We might misunderstand or misinterpret what the Bible's really saying. Is everyone tracking with me with that? So, do we go to heaven when we die? Yes, because we go to be with Jesus. Does the Bible set it up like that? No. It sets it up in terms of of paradise or whatnot. So, that's how um, heaven is spoken of in the Bible. Okay? The skies, God's space as a metaphor for God's dominion. So, seeing that heaven is God's space for his dwelling his dominion, and we're going to go and be there when we die as we wait for God to bring about judgment. What does that look like? What will we be doing in this paradise? And that's where we turn to Revelation chapter 6. I think it gives us some key insights into what is happening in heaven right now. What is happening in heaven right now? 
If you have a loved one who passed away, was a follower of Jesus, where are they right now? What are they doing right now? I think this passage gives us some insight, okay? Verse 9 in chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is a scene in heaven, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. First thing we want to see here, okay? Christians who have died are in heaven. This is a scene. It's just very basic. It's a scene that's happening in heaven, and we see Christians there. Christians are there um, in heaven. Very basic, um, but it's so important that we reinforce that. Let's keep reading here. Verse 10, these Christians, as they see this, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. A second thing to see in this passage that is so, so important is this. The Christians in heaven are still anticipating something. They're still looking for something else to happen. They are not at home yet. They are waiting for something else to unfold. So the Christians in heaven are still longing for something better to happen. Namely, they're waiting for God to execute his justice once and for all, and wrap up all of history in the renewal of all things on earth. So, just like we've already hit, their situation in heaven is temporary, and they know that, and they know that there's still work to be done. In fact, that's what they're begging for, and they're asking for. They know that this isn't the end game. God getting Christians up into heaven is not his end game. There's still work to be done. God has more in store, and the Christians in heaven are longing for it. N.T. Wright says this, Christianity is not about life after death, like heaven. Christianity is about life after life after death. What he means by that is you're going to go to life after death in heaven, but what you're really wanting to live for is life after that life after death. But life after life after death is what we look forward to as Christians, not simply life after death. Now, okay, so that's so important. The Christians in heaven, they don't feel at home yet. They're still ready for something else more to happen. They're still anticipating it and longing for it. But there's some other things we can learn from this passage that I think are interesting and helpful for us to know, okay? Um, Number three, Christians in heaven can see what is happening on earth. It seems to me, based on this passage, that the Christians who are now in heaven are looking down on the situation in earth, and it's because of what they see on earth that they are then asking and pleading with God for him to continue that work. So in the very very least, the Christians in heaven can at least see the general situation of earth. Does this also include that they can see the particulars of, like, your life? Like, can your grandma or something see you? I don't know. I, I, I would lend this passage to say yes. I think they can see you. And not only can they see you, like that's a nice sentiment, but they're praying for you. They are pleading to God on your behalf 
for, for God to bring about justice. So not only do the Christians in heaven see you, they're also pleading with God on behalf of the Christians still alive on earth. So the Christians in heaven are, in fact, concerned with you. They are concerned, and they're praying for you. They're pleading with God on his throne for God to bring his justice and wrap up all of history for you. I think we all have this idea that people in heaven should be, like, totally disconcerned with the things of earth, and that's not what this passage is showing. This passage is showing that they are so very concerned with things happening on earth, and they're most concerned with God dealing with his full plan of history and it unfolding. So there are some, some other things we could look at in this passage, like whether people in heaven have bodies, like they're wearing robes, does that mean they have some sort of body? Or whether they can see individuals or just general situations, what it means for them to be resting right now, like what does exactly that mean? But I, I think it's important to just kind of wrap this up for now, okay? This is how we can wrap up heaven, our understanding of heaven. Heaven is God's dwelling place and a realm that reflects his authority and lordship. When the Bible uses the word heaven, I think that captures most of what it's getting at. By God's grace and his glorious grace, God brings Christians to dwell with him when they die. But heaven is not their home. It's not where they ultimately belong. The Christians there, although they are joyfully resting in the presence of Jesus, they are also longing for God to bring about his full plan of salvation and restoration, where his kingdom that is in heaven now will be reflected on earth. So here's the practical point for all of us in this room. Do we long for God's restoration of all creation over and above our own longing to go to heaven? Are you more interested in going to heaven or God doing the full work that he set out to do? Are you more interested in going to a paradise or in seeing God unfold his great plan to restore all things? Because yes, heaven is great. It's very far better. That's how Paul describes it. It's a paradise where we get to be with Jesus. But there is more to the Christian life than enjoying heaven. The Christians in heaven themselves, they're in the presence of God. They're dwelling with their Savior, possibly with their other loved ones being reunited. And yet they are still burdened for God to do his work. They are not blinded by their own comfort, successes, and pleasures to what God still has to unfold. You know, it would be easy for them, them in heaven now, to get distracted and to be content with just enjoying the kingdom of heaven. And instead, they have to be calmed down by God. God says, calm down. I know what I'm doing. And take some rest. Rest a little bit. Right? Are you so wrapped up in heaven you don't see God's plan for the world? Or are you so wrapped up in God's plan for the world that God has to assure you of your own prosperity and tell you to rest? Say it's okay. What side do we lean on? 
Often myself, I lean on the side of my own personal comfort. I'm more concerned about me getting heaven than God getting the glory and the restoration of the universe. The people in heaven, they know that the story isn't about them. The story is not about them. Us in popular Christianity, when the main story is about us getting into heaven, one of the biggest dangers of that is we make Jesus all about us. We say, Jesus has a wonderful plan for my life. He's going to prosper me, bring me to heaven, and we get to enjoy all of that. And there's nothing wrong with that except for the fact it's completely anti-gospel if you take yourself as the center of that worldview. Paul says, this is what Paul says, he says he wishes he was accursed, that he would suffer in the flames and the darkness of hell instead of his brothers having to go there. He was so serious about God getting glory that he took his personal salvation and said, I wish I could give it to my brothers because God would get more glory for it. So are you radically committed to God getting the glory in your life for God's big story of resurrection to be the narrative of your life? So this is a story for all of God's creation of what we have received now, and we will receive a foretaste of it in heaven. We get that. But the greater longing and the greater desire for us has to be God's bigger story to continue to unfold. Let's ask ourselves a question um, another way, and the band's going to come up, and we're going to lead some time of reflection and a time of prayer for all of us to really meditate over this question, okay? Listen to me. Are we using God to write our story of happiness and satisfaction, or are we resting in the joy of being a part of God's story, a story that he's still unfolding? I don't think many of us realize how often we just use God to cleanse our conscience. We just don't want to feel guilty anymore. We just want to feel okay, and we just want to do what we want to do. And sometimes we just put this Jesus card down or this Jesus stamp down and say, now we're all good. We use God to write our own story, to write our own stories of success and pleasure instead of resting in the joy of being part of God's story. Are we all about using God to get to heaven, or are we all about God using us to bring heaven to earth? Are we all about going to heaven, or are we all about God coming to earth through us? Here's another way to say it. Are we distracted by our temporary residence in heaven so much so that we do not long for God to take up his residence on earth? If we're so concerned about the pit stop because it caters to what I want, instead of keeping our eyes on the final destination because that's what God wants, we are simply feeding our self-will. We are simply feeding the very thing that will lead us to hell, the very thing that will lead us to our own destruction. So we're prone to distraction and we're prone to have bad motives, every one of us in here. We are prone to those things. In our selfish tendencies, we might be using God as a tool rather than submitting to him as our Lord. Each one of us in here are susceptible to that temptation. So I want us to take a moment to pray. I want you to gather with people around you, 
Simply take a moment by yourself or pray with um, others around you and pray that God would reveal and change your motives if necessary. Reveal and change my motives, God. Do not let the distraction of heaven keep me away from longing for heaven on earth, even in my life. So I'm going to start us in prayer. The band's going to play instrumentally for you guys, and then we'll, we'll have one last song, okay? Father, we are people who need your refining work in our lives. We need you at times to cut us, to root out the sin in our hearts, to root out the selfishness in our souls, and God, to not only reveal those motives, but take them, throw them out, cast them outside of the new creation you've started in our hearts. So God, I pray that this moment for each and every student and person in here would be a moment where you go to surgery in our hearts. You take out those parts that are hellish, sinful, and you bring about a rest in your new creation. God, may we long for you.